If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have a great guest on the line today. I'm talking to Tim Cole. Tim is a corporate renaissance man. He's the founder and CEO of the Compass Alliance. In his broad and deep career, he's worked in several different functions in the pharmaceutical industry, including uh, sales, marketing, human resources, training, and leadership development. Over the course of his 30-year career, he worked in several senior leadership positions in the pharmaceutical industry and oversaw large teams and managed budgets to the tune of billions of dollars. He played a very instrumental role in the growth of a small Midwestern firm and helped grow it to one of the largest healthcare companies in the world. Along the way, he's helped many, many, many subordinates by developing their talents and mentoring them to become better senior executives and managers. Over the past few years, he's helped launch over 20 new brands to the market. And he's played key roles in six legitimate blockbusters. So I'm pleased to have uh, Tim on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, and his new book titled The Compass Solution, A Guide to Winning Your Career. So without further ado, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chi. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Great. So, So Tim, I just gave us a little brief overview about your career. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, well, I, first of all, I appreciate it. you said something that I, I really am uh, humbled by. I, I would like to say that I'm a Renaissance man, uh, but uh, I, I do appreciate the accolade because one of the things I learned in navigating all those years in the pharmaceutical healthcare field is that if you weren't a learner, if you didn't embrace the power of learning, it could be a pretty difficult road. And when I stumbled into healthcare, I did so without a lot of vision, a lot of real goals. I, I wanted to make a little bit of money, and I wanted a company car, and that was about the extent of it. And so I, I took a job. I didn't realize that eventually that job would morph into a career. And as you outlined in the in the introduction, I, I managed to make it through so many of the changes because one of the t- things that I finally realized at some point as my career began to unfold and that little job became a career mm-hmm. was that the only person that was really going to be responsible for that career path looked back in the mirror at me every day. Yeah. And so I began to identify markers and it's those markers that became my career compass that informs the book, the compass solution. Great. So now you mentioned a lot of things there. So let's, let's just dive a little bit deeper. I know like in the cycle of working, you know, when you get to a new job, you have to work a little bit harder to prove yourself and then the leadership notice you, but you experience so many different changes, you know, with mergers and restructurings, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, going through that a couple of times, I know you must have found yourself being like a hamster on a treadmill. So you developed something you call the True North, which is like a guide to help you navigate your career. So tell us a little bit about this True North. Yeah, well, it's a good question because you're right. By the time you get your third manager, your fourth department and your organization shifts and changes, 
there does come that day when you realize if it's going to be, it's up to me. And so eventually I built what I call the lodestar, the North star. And it is, it's very simple. And at least in terms of talking about it, but it's difficult for a lot of people to embrace the North star in my career compass was, was personal accountability. And people hear that and they go, well, I know I need to do a good job. It's a, it's a lot more than that. It's, um, taking on accountability for every aspect of your development, of how you choose to learn and where you choose to learn. It's taking uh, and quite frankly, embracing the fact that when you go into any kind of career, unfortunately, it's never going to be completely fair. It's never going to be an absolute meritocracy. And for me, when I begin to see people suddenly shift away, good Mm -hmm. people, Mm-hmm. Uh, I finally began to realize, okay, I've got to develop skills that will differentiate me. And a lot of those went into the lodestar of, of personal accountability. And once I finally got my head around that, and it wasn't easy because I was a little thick-headed, yeah. <laughs> everything, everything I experienced from that point on, I could put it in the context of, okay, I get it. It's not always going to break my weight. What am I going to do about it? So it was how I responded to crisis as opposed to just simply allowing the crisis to identify me that was everything in terms of the beginnings of, of the markers that eventually became the, the compass. Mm. So like with every compass, a compass has um, four different poles. So tell us a little bit about those four poles and then we'll dive into um, each one of them. Yeah, well, I, and the, you know, the military talks about keeping your azimuth straight, which is your directional point. And you're, and you're right. When I finally embraced the first point, the North Star, personal accountability, I was really focused on how do I optimize self. Yeah. And everything I could do to optimize self, that was my North Star. But it wasn't enough because I began to look and study at people that were really surviving and thriving. And I realized making myself optimal was one thing, but optimizing those around me, the people piece was, if not as important, mm-hmm. was pretty close. Yeah. So the second cardinal point became people. And what are the skills involved in becoming a great people player? Uh, that was the second. And I thought, okay, I got it figured out now. I'm five, six, seven years into my career. I got this thing figured out. If I can do a great job, optimize myself, optimize the people around me, I'm good. And it wasn't enough because the organization restructured and the culture changed. And so I eventually got to the point that I began to think about a third cardinal point, which I call process. And process in uh, simplistic terms is you need to understand how your industry works and how your company works, how it arrives at decisions, how the work product is developed. What is the system of, of uh, events, of processes that makes the larger engine run? So I was really kind of saying with the North Star, what do I do to optimize self? With the people cardinal point, how do I optimize those around me? With the process point, how do I optimize the organization mm-hmm. so I'm considered invaluable? So I had those three points. I thought, okay, I got this. And I still wasn't really thinking in terms of a compass. And then, fortunately, because of some uh, challenges that I had to go in my personal career, I finally arrived at the fourth cardinal point, And that was the connector for the points one, two, and three. And it was the one that might end up being overall for me, the biggest in my career. And I call it perspective Uh, and perspective for me was the gyroscope. It was that equalizer that made sure I balanced individual group company with how I looked at my life and the sense of balance that I struck there. So when I talk about perspective, I talk about the fact a lot of people live a lot of things 
The real question is, do you learn from them? And can you take the experiences gained to build that perspective? And for me, that was seeking a balance emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, and making sure that in the game of career, yeah, that I never made the game my total life. And that's that's the four cardinal points. Mm, that's awesome. All right, so let me dive deep and let's let's start with the first one, which is um, taking personal accountability. Now, when many people start a new job or as they're progressing in their career, they try to want to please their bosses and their t- and be viewed as a team player. But in personal accountability, I, from my understanding, it seems to me that you would want to put your personal ambition kind of like ahead of the demands of the company so that you don't um, forsake maybe your career aspirations at the behest of what the company wants you to do. So how can you balance those two without coming across as not being a team player? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. And I, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but the notion of finding something <clears throat> that you're passionate about, that you believe in, mm. And the values and philosophies that drive that, I think, are maybe more important than, quote unquote, pleasing the boss. You know, somebody told me early in my career, and I I never forgot it. They said, "Uh, I got news for you, Tim. You're now marketing a brand. And I said, okay, a marketing brand. I got it. No, they said, you don't understand. The brand you're marketing is you. Mm. And that manager, that supervisor, yeah, they're going to probably offer comment on the brand. But you've got to build a brand under the assumption that your company will change and your supervisor will change. So to your point, <clears throat> I talk about in the book the notion of managing up and trying to please the boss is one thing. Yeah. But you hit it dead on. The, you know, the person you really need to please is the person that looks back in the mirror every day and says, okay, are you living the values you talk about, mm-hmm. the philosophies, and are you building something that will transcend company and supervisor? And when you begin to do that, when you begin to do that, you're starting to become – just starting to become the CEO of your career. It doesn't happen overnight, but yeah. once you embrace yeah. that notion, it changes. Yeah, and it's especially hard for people to think of themselves as the CEO of their <laughs> career because a lot of people show up in a company and they just expect, okay, I'll just do what I told, I'm told, go along, get along, get the nice uh, bonus at the end of the year, get a bump, and then become promoted maybe after every couple of years. So it's different to start thinking, of yourself as a brand and as a CEO, whereas especially in marketing world and in the world around us, we see that everything that has longevity in life has a branding and a positioning and a voice in the world where you can get the same Coca-Cola, whether you're in Lagos, Nigeria, like I am, or you're in North Carolina, where you you live and work. You're right. And, um, you know, I, I think... You know, for me, one of the things I had to learn was there was a big difference in getting a job and maybe getting a promotion and getting the quote unquote pat on the back and pursuing a career. And you use the term and I, I use it a lot. If, if, if you have a sense of purpose and a sense of direction, the pats on the back are great. I mean, you, you want them. You want to get a paycheck. You want to have those nice accolades. But there's more to it. And, and what I try to say to people is, look, again, you're either going to lead your career. Or your career is going to lead you. Mm-hmm. And if you're mm-hmm. waiting for the pat on the back, you know, the attaboy that says you did a good job, Tim, I'm, I'm happy for you. That's one thing. But I always tried to eventually get to the point that the real pat on the back was the one that was the CEO. And I was really the CEO of the career. Yeah. So, um, 
looking at that, you know, especially in the corporate world, you know, there are two sides of the coin. That is um, passion and apathy. So a lot of people come to work, you know, they don't feel motivated. They don't like what they do. I think the statistic is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80 percent of employees are disengaged at work but you go back and you ask them about you know football or whatever it is that is their hobby or their passion and they can talk for hours on end and they can spend all day and night on that particular subject so how can we tackle this problem of you know lacking passion for what you do yeah i I, that's a question i think that's uh global in nature i'll give you a point of perspective you talked about the percentage of people that are disengaged, and I'll speak just to this country, but the figures are true for every country and in some cases are greater than United States. In the United States, if you look at millennials, which is the most important demographic because they're going to be 75 of our workforce, 75% of our workforce by 2025, about 71% are disengaged, about 29% are engaged. That's a Gallup poll that came out last year that I think was fairly revolutionary in calling out the scope of the challenge. And you hit it. A lot of people are passionate about some things in their lives. And I use the example in the book, a friend of mine that was a football fan. I mean, you could talk at length about, you know, the scores, uh, all the players. But when he talked about his career, it was just a job. Mm -hmm. And and so I think there are a couple things we can do. And I'm going to speak first to the company that you choose. A, A good leader a good leader can be a difference maker because he or she will say, Tim, this is what you're responsible for doing. Here's your goals. And I'm going to hold you accountable for it. And that alone will give us lift. But I don't think it's enough. Mm. I think what you really need for every employee, whether they work for a company of five or a company of 15,000, is we need to give them a sense of purpose and help them find that sense of purpose, mm-hmm. give them a sense of, of direction, yeah. and then give them some functional tools on how to become the CEO. The reason I wrote the Compass Solution, and I call it a guide to win, the Compass Solution, a guide to winning your career, is that I think a lot of people want to know what to do. They just don't know how. And that's mm-hmm. why I wrote the book, because I think if you give people some practical tools and a compass, mm-hmm. more often they're better able to, to find their path. Yeah. Now, um, one one thing I'm saying is that is that it has to. Uh, it's almost like it's driven from the top. So managers and leaders kind of have a responsibility to help guide, especially people like millennials who are going to make up seventy five percent of the workforce. So managers and um, leaders have to help guide them so that they sh- uh, they learn and they develop um, the skills and the passion for what they do. But um, for the person receiving that instruction and that mentorship, what are some of the tough questions I like I'll use myself I would need to ask myself so that I don't abdicate the responsibility of developing and growing my career to a manager or a boss or a leader in the office yeah yeah I, I, that's a question I think everybody should ask because um, once you abdicate that, uh, it's the difference between owning your career and, and renting your career. And mm-hmm. I have a, a, a quote that uh, I, I use in the book. It takes courage to grow up and become who you really are. And I use as an example, um, you know, when I was a kid, I can remember members of my family would come up to me when I was six or seven and say, so, Tim, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd always have some far fetched answer and they would laugh and pat me on the back and off I'd go to get, you know, my turkey leg at Thanksgiving. But I, I think 
the challenge is life begins to take hold for a lot of people when they reach their 20s, if they go to college, after college, and all the dreams and aspirations of what could be are sometimes replaced by the reality of mortgage and yeah. paying back college loans. And before you know it, that vision, that bright shining star that said, this is what I can be is lost. Uh -huh. And then this is my opinion. And I've seen it probably a few thousand times. A lot of people fall into a job and instead of thinking and asking themselves questions, they go to their manager, their supervisor, and they say, Hey, um, I want guidance on career. I want you to tell me what I, I need to do. Yeah. And at that point they're doing gee, exactly what you just said. They're, they're abdicating. They're saying, well, I don't really know what to do. So I'll go to my manager. My manager will help me. And I think the challenge is when you've done that, you've basically taken away your mortgage on your professional life. And you said to your manager, I'll pay you with my time and effort. And in turn, you're going to provide me with a safe place. Well, there is no safe place unless you're driving it. Yeah. And it begins with asking those questions and you got to listen to the inner voice. If you don't have that inner voice, go find it. Mm. And then the next question would be, I mean, at one point in our lives, we'll all meet them. So this is having to do with, uh, I know you've see, probably seen or heard about that movie called Horrible Bosses. So, how, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's not too extreme in many companies, but sometimes it does get very extreme. So how can someone survive a bad boss knowing fully well that it's, inevitable to encounter such a person in the work environment. Well, you, you hit it because if you play the game long enough, even if you're an entrepreneur and are self-employed, you know, your customer then is your boss. Yeah. But the yeah. reality is you're going to have someone at some point in your career uh, where they drive you nuts. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, for most of us, the first time we encounter a bad boss, our thought is, well, this is the first time this has ever happened. Well, no, no, it happens pretty much every day and it's a part of life. And whether you're an individual contributor and you have your own business or you're in a corporation of 15,000, your day's going to come. We're going to draw the short stick. And you're right. Um, there's some basic points that we call out. One of the book, one of the chapters in the in the book, uh, The Compass Solution, is the bad boss. And I I say to people, look, here are things I had to learn. And there are basic things like. It's a part of life. You have to go ahead and assume you can learn from that person. You have to think about the fact that your perception of what a bad boss is may or may not be correct. You know, one of the things I had to realize at some point in my life is that just because somebody has a different personality, a different background, a different perspective, that doesn't make them a bad boss. Mm. It just may be someone that I find difficult to work with. And so what we offer in the book are some just basic steps. In fact, I've got uh, what I call bad boss survival tips. Uh, and and, and here's, here's one of them. Uh, if you've got what you think is a bad boss, ask yourself if you have a clear, unbiased vision of what a great boss should be. Because many of us are really good at pointing out uh, – what we kind of think, but we don't necessarily know what great looks like. We just know what we want. Yeah. And what I try to say in the book is, look, guys, part of surviving and thriving in your career is to take those situations, learn from them, and don't let the adversity knock you down and never get up again. And I've seen situations, Chi, mm -hmm. where a bad boss forced somebody out of the company, and that's such, such a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, and it happens all the time, you know. But um, as a... Addendum to that, 
you know, the next step of having a bad boss is, you know, office politics. You know, the gay, the Game of Thrones and the House of Cards that is played while you <laughs> don't realize that there's a game within the game being played. So yep. h- how do you survive that 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 environment where you know that, you know, there's a lot of intrigue, a lot of drama, and some people are just not political by nature, and so they miss the cues that this, these things are happening around them. Yes, uh, and um, you know, I learned uh, probably in about my eighth or year, eighth or ninth year, that the, the people who complain most about politics uh, in the corporate world or any career are the people who don't know how to play the game. That's the first learning I had, and then the other things I had to learn, and I learned the hard way. I mean, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I figured early in my career, I'll just be apolitical. I'll be the business equivalent of Switzerland. I will not engage. I will not play the game. I'll do my job. I'll go home and I'll be fine. And then I began to realize there is no apolitical position and apolitical position is political. Mm. So that's not an option for you. And so what I try to say to people in the book is just as with a bad boss, this has happened a million times before. It'll happen a million times again. You simply have to understand that politics are a part of every company. Whenever you have more than three people, you'll have politics. Mm-hmm. And so what, mm-hmm. I tr- what I try to say to people is, look, there are some survival tips that I used that help. And, and here's an example. One of the things I had to learn in my companies, because we went through five or six mergers and different cultures, different, really different companies. Every time we went through what I considered the political game, one of the first things I had to do was learn who the influencers are and find out who carries official titles, but who really have the respect of the people. And if you know who the influencers are, if you understand and can connect with those influencers, your chances of navigating politics increases exponentially. If you don't know who the influencers are, what you're going to do is you're going to play a game. You're going to talk to this person, that person, and every other person in between, and you'll never gain traction uh, and so what I talk about, and I won't go into too great a detail, is I say to people, look, you're going to have a sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. You're either going to be a positive influence or you're going to be a negative influence. But you can beat politics if your goodwill and the values that you demonstrate are strong enough. If you fall victim to and begin to crawl into the ditch with some of the political operatives, you may find yourself getting very dirty and you may never climb out. Mm. Very true. Very true. So it may come to a point where, you know what, the bad boss gets to you, offered politics gets to you, and then you just feel you can't take it anymore. So um, how would you determine when is a good time to, to quit or to leave? Uh, it's, uh, it's a question that I've discussed more times than I probably want to uh, remember because everyone at some point in their career journey will have to ask themselves some tough questions. Am I better off staying where I am yeah. or leaving? And, uh, you know, uh, there's a quote by uh, one of the Rockefellers that says, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. And what I what I have in the book is uh, some general questions. I, in fact, I call it the uh, the corporate divorce 10, but it's really career <laughs> uh, divorce 10. And it's it's 10 questions that I say to anyone who's contemplating making a move that they should be able to ask themselves. You know, one of the things I learned again, the hard way is the most 
incredibly emotionally mature people I've ever met are the ones that can ask themselves hard questions and then have the courage to answer. A lot of people, you know, they look at the world, they're really good at looking the rest of the world, but they can't look at themselves. And so I'll give you a, a couple of the questions that I include in the, the corporate divorce 10. Here's the first one's pretty basic. Am I happy here? You know, if you're just surviving, you got to ask yourself on a one to 10, if I'm a three, I need to think about that. Second thing I ask is, are the company's values and philosophies aligned with mine? The biggest challenge I ever had in my 37 plus years in healthcare was when I felt the values and the philosophies of the company no longer align with mine. And that's something I think you have to ask. I I won't go into all of them, but another another one I, I ask is, do my skill sets align with what I do every day? You know, if, if what I do best is not what I'm doing every day, I need to think about that. So we outline that in far greater detail, but that'll give you at least a flavor. Yeah, no, no, that's that's always good to leave just a, a little ta- sample and a little taste out there so that at least people can get the book and learn more about what we're talking about. So my next question now is um, when it comes to um, some skills that we all need to learn especially in the workplace, now that things are changing, the new economy, rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, people are getting redundant by the day. You mentioned that the three most overrated business skills. So what are they and why are they overrated? And then what are some of the skills we can start learning and acquiring to make us um, recession proof, so to speak? Yeah, I don't know if we can guarantee recession proof, but I'll give you uh, one that I think anybody that's navigated a career is probably in some way has come to grips with. When I when I started, um, I believe that if you were organized and could push the piles of work in the right uh, direction, you probably would have some degree of success. I was not inherently organized. I will admit that. Mm. And then I began to work and learn basic organizational skills and said, I've I've got it. I I now know and can kind of put my work in the right bucket. I'll be in good shape. And it wasn't enough. Um, I began to study people that were highly organized that were totally ineffective. And so I looked at the people that were effective and I began to realize there was a second level skill. So organization in and of itself is, I don't want to say it's misinterpreted, but it's not really enough. The second level skill is the ability to prioritize, to yeah. decide, you know, what is most important every day. And I have a system I talk about in the book about how you prioritize that. But the capacity to prioritize is much more important than the capacity to organize. But then I got to the third level, and that was a game changer for me. And I, it's not really even a proper word, but I, I say organization, prioritization, and then the third level is calendarization. And by that I mean, if you've got two priorities on Friday, a really effective energy manager prioritizes and puts that in their calendar. So nothing takes precedent over that. It was hard for me because I booked stuff. I had to do list. I had every day full of calendar stuff. But when I forced myself to organize, prioritize, and then calendarize Mm -hmm. my effectiveness, my efficiency probably increased 20, 30% and still does to this day. And I, I always say to people, look, organize, prioritize, calendarize, OPC is the acronym. That's the quickest way to overcome what I think sometimes is um, career and or corporate attention deficit disorder. But if you learn the skills, 
it's a game changer. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So we've talked a whole lot about the poles and the compass themselves. Now let's move to another segment of your book where you talked about leadership and communication. Now leadership is a very critical factor in every organization and group. So a lot of people would actually do a lot for someone who they believe in and they trust and somebody who's inspiring them to go for the gold and be the best. Now, unfortunately, many managers are not that um, transformative or inspiring. So they cannot say, oh, do this and you'll probably get a good review when it's time for annual review. So how do we start to shift the mindset of people that are in leadership positions to, to to teach them how to become better leaders and better inspire people working for them because many people don't quit their jobs they actually quit their leaders and their bosses yeah i think the greatest percentage of people that leave chi leave their bosses first yeah and uh you're right in the book i spend the first half of the book talking about the compass and the building the survival skills that will help ensure you have a career. And those four cardinal points that we talked about are, are that. But then I decided, well, no, I, I want to maybe go a step further. I want to have a master class. And the master class talks about three keys that I've seen that were differentiators as regards really thriving in the career. And the first one was exactly what you just described, and it's leadership. And what I, what I suggest to people is, first of all, you have to make the decision yourself to be a leader. And people hear that and go, well, wait a minute, I don't have interest in management or supervision. And I'm not saying management or supervision. You may pursue that. I'm saying that every leader I've ever met is a person of influence. If you're not a person of influence, if you can't influence people around you, whether they work for you or not, your chances of thriving in your career are going to be something less. And so to your point, I stress to people, I want you first to be a leader yourself because great leaders are capable of following. But then I also say, and, and you, you spoke to it well, the best leaders I've ever worked with were different. They, um, I call them transformative leaders, and here's why. They always managed to uh, hook the heart and the head, and I wanted to do well for them because I knew they believed so much in me. Yeah. And everyone else was a transactional manager which is exactly what you know we see every day. If you do your job, I'll give you a pat on the back. I'll mm -hmm. give you your bonus check. Uh, and transactional managers, I think, affect hands and feet. Mm -hmm. Transformative leaders affect heart and head. Yeah. Transformative leaders are a lot more rare. But when you find them, and if you become one, your chances of surviving, thriving, and influencing a lot of people increases exponentially. Yeah. yeah. And as we start to wind down the show, the next step in the in the masterclass you talked about was communication. Leadership and communications are almost two sides of the same coin. So speak a little bit about the importance of being effective communicators, especially in large organizations, especially when you led teams to the tune of thousands and you manage budgets to the tune of billions. So I'm sure there must have been many communication issues along the way when you were in your career at that point. Yeah, well, I, I had to learn, Chi, first of all, that the most articulate spokesperson isn't necessarily the best communicator. I had to see that firsthand, and I began to realize. Really? Yeah, it, 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 and I, I, I struggle with that. I remember seeing people that I thought were the most articulate in the world, but they weren't necessarily effective communicators. They were great mm. talkers, 
but they weren't effective communicators. And I'll give you an example. When I was in my 20s, I was invited to a seminar on communication. Consultant comes out on the middle of the stage, begins to talk, <clears throat> stops, uh, coughs a bit, steps away, comes back a second time, then a third time and says, excuse me. He walks to a table and it, there's a pitcher of water there, ice water, and two glasses. He picks up the pitcher of water, proceeds to pour it, flows all uh, over the glass onto the floor, onto his feet, onto the stage. We all giggle and think, what kind of goofball have they brought in? And then he said something, Chi, that I never forgot. He walked back to the center of the stage, still holding the glass. He put the pitcher of ice water down and said, I've just offered an insight that I hope you carry with you the rest of your life. And he pulled the glass down and he peeled off a thin layer of saran wrap. And he said this, before you can ever be an effective communicator, you've got to find a way to get the lid off. The saran wrap was <laughs> wow. the lid. And here's what I learned from that. I learned that to get people's attention, to really get them to go to the point that they want to listen to you, you have to do what I just did right there. And I borrow from him, him greatly. You have to be a great storyteller. Yeah. We learn by stories. And that is one of the areas. And I talk about the two keys, I think, for great communication. But the first one, the first one is you have to be capable of telling a story mm. that will get people to want to listen to you. And transformative leaders and great communicators both share that same characteristic. That's 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 great. I mean, I would have expected it to be the other way around, but it's it's really important, especially because in life we are surrounded by stories twenty four seven. You go home, your kids tell you a story of how their day right. was. You go to the movies and you watch stories. You watch TV; it's a story. Your favorite books are stories, so it makes sense that at least in the workplace, stories are also the driving factor that will help engineer and in inspire action from. Um, people that you work with. So as we start to wind down, Tim, I have one or two wrapping up questions for you. So my first question is this. Um, looking back on your career, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have gone, you would go back and change based on what you know now? Uh, yes, I think it, there is. I think that um, until I found that perspective cardinal point on the compass, I think there were times that I probably devoted too much uh, time and attention to my career. And it was only when I finally struck that balance that I became better in all avenues of my life. So I would say I would probably have reined that in at some point. Uh, I found that career and career success was a little bit like salt water. Mm. The more I drank it, the thirstier I got. But there came a time when I finally quenched that thirst. And it was only when I found that gyroscope in my life. So that was a difference maker. Mm. And my last question for the day is, you're now the founder and CEO of the Compass Alliance. So you've moved from corporate after spending 37 years to now running your own business as a teacher, mentor, speaker, coach, consultant, and trainer. So what are some of the key skills you learn in corporate that are helping you tremendously as an entrepreneur? I think the one advantage I will be able to offer people that buy the book and or want me to work with them is that as opposed to a great many, I've walked the path uh, every step and every word in the compass solution I built based on the experiences gained. What I want to be able to do is in some way go back 
and answer the questions that I would have had when I was 21 years old that I didn't have access to because I want to be able to give people not just uh, a sense of, of purpose and direction because that's what the compass does. I want to give them practical tools, uh, a, a leader's guide, a GPS, a map yeah. that I think might help people along the way. If we do that, this will be a successful venture. Great. And with that said, we've reached the end of the show. I want to thank you for coming to share your words of wisdom, Tim. So where can people learn more about you and get the book? They can go to Amazon to get the book, The Compass Solution, A Guide to Winning Your Career. And if they'd like to learn more about the company, go to thecompassalliance.com. Great. And I'll link to those two links in the show notes. So it's a pleasure having you to share your stories, your words of wisdom. And I hope to talk to you again in the future to learn more about how we can all develop, you know, the career success principles that you've outlined in the book that will help us go into the future with confidence and with boldness. Thank you, Chi. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, Go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneurial Podcast at www.odogwu.com.